So it looks like it's, uh, it's time for us to, to get started again. I want to welcome all of you back. Uh, I love the rhythm of, of the days at Cato University. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's fun to get together in the morning and, and reflect on what you did the day before. Uh, it's fun to hear the, the first lecture to go to break to, uh, to have discussions, you know, based on some of the insights that it, that it offered. Um, and then the only thing that's unfun is the break has to end. And, uh, it has to end, and then you have to come here, and here I am. And, uh, and, and, and sadly, the, uh, the topic um, that, I'm, that I'm here to address is, is, is not a particularly light one. Um, but that's not to say that it's not important. It's really, really important, I think, for us to appreciate the duality of the American experience. Um, I think one of the, the greatest things about the United States is that it is based on the principles of liberty. And, and yet, one of the, the great conundrums of American history is that almost since the beginning, liberty has coexisted with slavery. And, uh, and that is a very difficult thing, I think, for Americans to get their heads around. And I think it's very important that we don't deny the fact that, that slavery, um, for much of our history, coexisted with American liberty, um, and that the, the principles of the Declaration of Independence were very inconsistently applied. So uh, this morning, what I'd like to talk about is the, the history of slavery in America, um, how it started, how it developed, um, how successive generations at least attempted um, to address it, um, to take shots at it, to make dents in it, ultimately to abolish it, um, and then, you know, very briefly, if there's time, to maybe reflect on, on the aftermath of our experience with the ordeal of slavery. Um, it's, it's worth noting, um, as, I, as I was able to touch upon when I first spoke on, on Tuesday, um, that slavery begins almost at the very same moment as representative government in America. Uh, I mentioned that we know the, the place and we know the, the exact date um, when the House of Burgesses first convened. It was July 30th, 1619, in Jamestown. Um, you could literally see the foundations um, of the building in which the House of Burgesses first met if you visit Jamestown today. Um, you could look down at those um, foundations and, and look at uh, a physical embodiment of the foundation of representative government in the Western Hemisphere. And yet, we know that at some point in August of 1619, a day or two later, a week or two later, after Americans first came together to make their own laws, the laws under which they would live, there was a dock. And at that dock, there was anchored a ship, a ship that had blown off course, a ship that had not intended to land at Virginia, but ended up landing at Virginia, a Dutch ship carrying um, as cargo 20 human beings from Africa who there had been kidnapped, captured, and brought to the New World against their will and sold as human property, sold as slaves. So there in Jamestown, the same exact place, almost the same exact time, American slavery and American freedom take root together. And it's, uh, it's, it's not that Virginia is the only place in the American 
colonies that will have slavery. Um, slavery was legal throughout the, the, the American colonies. Slavery was present in all of the American colonies. There were slaves in Massachusetts. There were people enslaved in Connecticut. In general, the further south you went, the, the higher number um, of, of, of slaves you would find. Uh, Virginia had a large number of enslaved people by the 18th century um, working in its tobacco fields. Of course, if you went further south, say to South Carolina, um, you would actually find that the population had a black majority. Um, There were more enslaved people in South Carolina at the time of the American Revolution than there were free people. And uh, if you were to go even further south to the British colonies of the Caribbean, we, we, we oftentimes don't think about them when we think about Britain's American colonies, but there were British colonies in the Caribbean. There, on average, enslaved people outnumbered free people by a ratio of four to one. On some islands, the ratio was 16 or 18 to one. And you know, one of the questions that frequently we don't ask um, is, well, why are these Caribbean islands not joining? with the mainland British colonies and declaring their independence and throwing off the yoke of British slavery, as many white Americans described it in the lead up to independence. And and I think, you know, the actual slavery uh, that those British people imposed upon um, Africans or the descendants of Africans in the Caribbean is, is one main reason why they weren't going to rock the boat and declare independence. Um, in the In the Caribbean, the main cash crop was sugarcane. And if you know anything about sugarcane, you know that it's, it, you know, sugarcane doesn't grow like daisies. It's not a flower that you could just pick. Um, sugarcane is something that you have to hack down, you know, with a machete. And, and, and so to imagine these English people on these Caribbean islands, outnumbered by the people whom they had enslaved, people who outnumber them by a ratio of four to one, or in some cases, 10 to one, or 16 to one, or 18 to one, people whose lives they had ruined, people who have machetes, (laughs) you you can imagine that they would uh, opt to cast their lot with the stability of remaining part of the British Empire, um, rather than entertaining the notion um, that they would leave it and declare their independence. Uh, It's, of course, a fact that slavery as an institution is something that evolved, something that gradually um, took root. And on Tuesday, when I spoke about Jamestown, I had the opportunity to tell you a little bit about the story of of Anthony Johnson. Anthony Johnson and others like him, um, people whose names we know, another one is Tony Longo, um, were individuals born in Africa, brought against their will to Virginia, as slaves. Um, these are individuals who, uh, who, in the early years of settlement, in the 1620s uh, and 30s and 40s, um, found that they were very much in the minority as far as the unfree workforce was concerned. The vast majority of people who were part of the labor force of Virginia in the 1620s and 30s and 40s and 50s were indentured servants. Englishmen who had voluntarily signed up um, to labor in the fields of the great tidewater planters. People who, uh, as I mentioned, were promised in in exchange for their transit across the Atlantic, um, in exchange for a promise to work 
uh, for someone else for four or five or six or seven years, um, they'd be promised a land of their own um, once their term of indenture was up. And, 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 and the real divide, it seems, in Virginia, early in its colonial history, um, was not so much between white people and black people, not so much between people uh, who came from Europe and people who came from Africa, but between people who had their freedom and people who did not. And there were plenty of white people who did not. And, and, and so the barriers between people from Africa and people from, from Europe, principally England, um, were really much lower um, than, than we might at first glance suspect. I mean, it's kind of interesting, you know, the, the narratives that we have in our heads. Um, we, we generally tell ourselves that, yes, there are, there are racial problems today, um, but the farther back you go, the worse they get. You know, there are racist people in America now, but, you know, at least it's not like, say, the 1950s. And, and you might say, well, there were racist people in the 1950s, but, but at least it, it wasn't as bad maybe as, as, as 1900. And I'm sure in 1900, they would tell themselves, yeah, we, we have a problem with race, but at least it's not the 1850s. But, but that's when that uh, pattern seems to begin to unravel. Because when you go back in time, say to 1800, I'm not sure that racial attitudes in 1800 were as bad as they were in the 1850s. And were you to go back to 1700 or 1650, you really begin to find evidence that, that slavery was on the books in America before the racial attitudes that sustained it had, had, had fully developed. And we find in Virginia, in the middle of the 17th century, people from Africa marrying people from England. We find in the middle of the 17th century in Virginia, people from Africa uh, getting along quite well with people from England. Um, we find in Virginia in the middle of the 17th century, people from Africa, like Anthony Johnson, gaining their freedom and themselves becoming the owners of the labor of people from England, the labor of English indentured servants. And it's, it's really remarkable, right? And, and, it, and it really, it's kind of a hopeful story that, that people from two different continents were capable of coming together in this continent and, and, and getting along and, and living alongside one another and, and building a society that was based on, 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 on trade, based on exchange, um, and, and not one that was based on you know, arbitrary divisions of race. And, and yet, as we know, that is going to change. And I mentioned on Tuesday that a moment where those changes really seem to crystallize is 1676. I mean, an easy date to remember, 100 years prior to the independence of the British North American colonies. In Virginia, we have another attempted revolution, Bacon's Rebellion. And Nathaniel Bacon was the leader of a number of white indentured servants who uh, had survived their terms of indenture, um, who were keen on themselves prospering in this new world, who wanted to get more land upon which they could grow more tobacco. And the response of the elite of Virginia, the people who were in positions of power 
in the House of Burgesses was, was to try to um, blunt that competition by not only constraining um, the land that these former indentured servants could occupy, but, but also adopting policies that did away with indentured servitude. It was one thing to have indentured servitude when very few indentured servants would survive their terms of indenture and live to compete with you economically. It was another thing altogether when, when every year there were hundreds of indentured servants who themselves became freeholders, who themselves became landowners, who themselves became tobacco growers. And as the demand for tobacco leveled off, the quantity of tobacco grown every year went up and up and up. What's the solution? It seems pretty clear. The leaders of Virginia, the political leaders of Virginia, gravitated towards slavery. And, and the people from Africa, or the descendants of people from Africa, who had been free, lost all sorts of different legal rights. They no longer uh, could own guns. They could no longer enter into legally binding contracts. People who previously had owned the labor of Africans lost rights too. They no longer had the right to give, give someone his freedom. Slavery became a permanent race-based institution. And the incentives that the Virginia politicians had created to sustain, to subsidize indentured servitude went away. And so Virginia adopts this two-tiered race-based system of labor where some are free and will always be free and others are enslaved and will always be slaves. And, and that's the norm in America in 1776. In 1776, wherever you go, slavery is legal. Wherever you go, uh, slavery exists. It exists more in some parts of the new United States of America than in others, but it is everywhere. And, and, and so the Declaration of Independence truly is a, a, a document that is full of irony, that, that these people would come together and declare that all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. About 20% of the population of the United States in 1776. These were people who did not own their own lives. These, these were people whose, whose happiness was, was not a factor. These were a people who were completely denied their liberty. And it wasn't lost upon the people at the Pennsylvania State House who ratified this document. They understood the, the tension between the principles of 76 and the realities of 76. And, and oftentimes we, uh, I think, can rightly kind of point our fingers and shake our heads at the, the revolutionary generation and say, my gosh, you know, I wish they could have done more. But, but it is fair enough to say uh, that they did do more than previous generations. That, that the existence of the ideologies of the American Revolution, the existence of the principles on which they based their revolution, caused this generation 
to stand up and confront the reality of slavery in a way that previous generations had not. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence himself, was the owner of about 200 men, women, and children. But, but he understood the, the wrongness of this, and he understood that the principles of American slavery spat in the face of the principles of the American Revolution. And indeed, Jefferson and other members of his generation did attempt to do things about slavery. Jefferson, as I mentioned, within the text of the Declaration of Independence, among the charges against George III that justified our declaration, Jefferson in his draft included the fact that the king had allowed the transatlantic slave trade, that this was cruel war against human nature itself, as he wrote. And, and yet, the delegates from South Carolina and Georgia, when they saw this included in Jefferson's draft of the Declaration, said, if this remains in, we are getting out. You know, we will not be part of, of, of this new uh, United States. And so at the moment of America's birth, slavery possessed the potential to lead to America's dismemberment. And, and there at, at, at Philadelphia in 1776, a precedent is set, one that will be followed and repeated again and again, all the way up to the American Civil War, that, that Americans are going to compromise over slavery in order to support other goals. In this case, the goal of independence. And uh, you know, while this is a defeat for those who want to put America on record in opposition to slavery, who want to work into this statement of purpose for the nation, the inconsistency of slavery with the principles of liberty, people are going to continue to take actions or to attempt to take actions that will curtail slavery and its spread throughout the United States. The war for independence is an interesting time. Um, it's an interesting time um, for all Americans. It's an interesting time for African Americans. Um, it's fair enough to describe the war for independence in some respects as a civil war. There are plenty of Americans who are not on board with the project of independence. John Adams in 1776 estimated that about a third of Americans supported independence, a third opposed it, a third were on the fence. A number of the people who were on the fence were enslaved within the American South. And when people like Virginia's last royal governor, Lord Dunmore, made the offer to them, if your master is a patriot, if your master supports the cause of independence, and you could escape, you can run away and make it behind British lines, if you will join the British army, I promise that you will be granted your freedom when the war is concluded. That promise was made, that, that deal was accepted by a lot of African Americans in Virginia. When we think about people fighting for their freedom during the American Revolution, we should be cognizant of the fact that it's not just white people fighting for their freedom against Britain. It, it also is black people fighting for Britain because it promises them their freedom, their freedom from slavery. Of course, promises made are not always promises kept. 
at the, uh, the concluding and climactic Battle of Yorktown in 1781, the, uh, the British army has fortified itself with its back against the Chesape- Chesapeake Bay at Yorktown. And Washington gets news that the British have, have placed themselves in this somewhat precarious spot. I mean, they're surrounded by water on three sides. Um, if he could get his army there, if he could prevent the British Navy from, from coming to the assistance of Cornwallis, um, if Admiral de Gras can be counted on to block the British Navy and instead appear on the horizon um, and instead surround the British by water at Yorktown, which is what indeed happened. And if the troops of Washington's and Rochambeau's can surround them by land, well, in this classic siege, time would certainly be on the side of the Americans and their French allies. And one of the first problems that Cornwallis has is is that they're running out of food. They're running out of water. The, The large number of people that the British have is not as much of an asset as it is a liability. So one of the decisions that Cornwallis is going to make is to essentially eject the the African-Americans from the British Army, to throw them into the breach, to to throw them into the gunfire of the American and French forces. So for many of these African-Americans who had sought freedom with the British, who had hoped that the British would keep their promise, um, this is a very sad and bitter end um, to their time as members of the British Army. After the War for Independence, you have uh, a unique opportunity. Britain has recognized as U.S. territory all of the land um, that it once put off limits, all of the land between the Proclamation Line of 1763 at the crest of the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River was now recognized as United States territory. What to do with this land? How to develop this land? How to script the future of this land? Was a question faced by members of Congress under the Articles of Confederation in 1784. A member of that Congress was Thomas Jefferson from Virginia. And Jefferson had a number of ideas Um, that he proposed in his ordinance of 1784. One idea is that uh, all of the eastern states, if they had territorial claims in the west, they should give those claims up. If you look at uh, old colonial maps of British North America, oftentimes you see the, the borders, the northern and southern borders of states like North Carolina or Virginia extending along the map westward as far as the eye can see. The colonial charters of these now American states oftentimes granted them all of the land westward to the the Pacific Ocean. And in some instances, these territorial claims are straightforward enough. In others, they're not. In others, there are territorial claims that overlap. Pennsylvania, for example, was promised all of the land to its west. And yet in Connecticut's charter, 
my home state. In Connecticut's charter, Connecticut was promised all of the lands west of Pennsylvania. Connecticut had a great continental empire. We began to, to settle it in our western reserve of Ohio. Right? That was a land granted by the government of Connecticut, oftentimes to people um, from places in Connecticut that had been uh, you know, brutalized by the British. Danbury, Connecticut, for example, was largely burned to the ground by the British. A lot of the people in Danbury were given you know, land in what is now Ohio. Connecticut's empire went all the way west along the present-day uh, Interstate 80 corridor through Reno, Nevada, Sacramento, all the way to San Francisco. It was part of Connecticut. Problem was, Pennsylvania thought that it controlled the same territory. There were people from Pennsylvania moving out into Ohio, arriving at their land, only to find that people from Connecticut were already settled upon it. There, there were skirmishes. There was violence. How do we diffuse this? Jefferson thought that we needed to essentially say that none of the eastern states are going to maintain any land claims west of the Appalachians. And we're going to take this land, and we're going to start fresh. We are going to divide it into new territories, territories that will have Republican governments, that will have these sort of political training wheels, wheels on, that when they reach a sufficient population, um, when they uh, decide that they're going to apply for admission to the Union, they can do so and become states on an equal basis with all the pre-existing ones, which is really kind of a, 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 a neat thing. In other words, the, uh, the existing states of the Union are not going to treat this unincorporated territory um, and, and, and the territories that will be incorporated from this land as if they are colonies, right? We're going to create a mechanism for, for the equality within our union. And not just the equality of these polities, right? Jefferson hopes that this land in the West will not be poisoned by slavery. Jefferson has a proposal in his Ordinance of 1784 to ban slavery in all of this land. Slavery will not exist, according to his plan, between the Great Lakes and the Gulf of Mexico. And when you think about this, when you think about the fact that if Jefferson's proposal had passed, slavery would not have taken root in, in the future states of Kentucky or Tennessee or Alabama or Mississippi or presumably Louisiana or Missouri or Texas, you really have to wonder, how would that have changed history? And it's not as if Jefferson's proposal was, was blown out of the water. Thomas Jefferson was hopeful that Americans would, would adopt his plan. And it was a reason, it was a time when it was reasonable to be hopeful that that might be the case. Not only were people flush with the ideas of the American Revolution and the spirit of 76, but a number of people had begun to experiment with crops other than the labor-intensive cash crops that they previously had gravitated toward. In Virginia, for example, they had traditionally grown tobacco, and yet tobacco really depletes the fertility of the soil. People were switching to wheat. Wheat is less labor-intensive. It's imaginable that, that America could leave slavery behind. And indeed, within 
the Congress, where before the Constitution and under the Articles of Confederation, the states each had one vote. So the members of the state delegation would vote to determine how their state would vote. It seems quite possible that Jefferson's resolution, that his ordinance of 1784 would pass. And ultimately, it came down to one vote. It came down to the vote of a man from New Jersey named John Beatty, who was a supporter of Jefferson's proposal, but who was ill, who was sick, who missed the vote. The two other delegates from New Jersey were divided. And so New Jersey's vote was split and it was not able to vote as a delegation in support of Jefferson's Ordinance of 1784. And as a result, the Ordinance of 1784 failed. It never was enacted. I mean, you think about it. A couple nights ago, we went to the Cannon House office building and heard Congressman Amash. And it's just so fantastic that he's never missed a vote, right? They're all important. They're all important, or at least they possess the potential to be. Certainly this one was. Jefferson wrote, thus we see the fate of millions unborn hanging on the tongue of one man. And heaven was silent in that awful moment. And, and you just think about it. You just think about all the people who would end up enslaved in Kentucky and Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi and all the other states that would be added to the Union. What if that ordinance of 1784 had passed? How would that have changed the future? I mean, it's a question we really can't answer. It's a counterfactual one, but it's clearly a fork in the road. And uh, it's, it's a sad moment, I think, in American history. It is not, however, the only thing that people were attempting to do to resist slavery, and it spread throughout the United States. If you, uh, if you look on the state level, in the years immediately after the American Revolution, in the 1780s and in the 1790s, there are a number of states that adopt policies of gradual emancipation. In, uh, in states of the North, you see this happening essentially in, in one of three ways. Well, there's one way that's not gradual at all. In Massachusetts, for example, a court decision banned slavery. So Massachusetts unburdens itself of slavery as early as 1780, during the years of the War for Independence. When uh, Vermont enters uh, the, uh, the, the Union, it is already free of slavery because Vermont had banned slavery in 1777. Other northern states are going to take a more gradual approach. They would come up with policies that would, would say, for example, after uh, all slaves, all people born into slavery after July 4th, let's say, 1800, will become free when they turn a certain age, when they, when they turn 21 or 23. Other states would say, at a certain future date, all people held in slavery would go free. This was action that was certainly delayed. I mean, if you look at the maps, you could see that there was slavery in New York until 1827, slavery in, in, in Rhode Island until 1842, slavery in Connecticut until 1848, 
Slavery in Pennsylvania until 1850. Now, these numbers are small. A lot of these end dates are because some people were born into slavery and lived long lives. So they always remained slaves, and, and slavery ended when the, the eldest slave passed away. But slavery is, is, is a reality in the North for a long time, but at least there is an expiration date. At, at least there is a time when slavery will officially come to an end. Sadly, though, for many people who were enslaved in the North, the reality is that their enslavement would not come to an end. If you were a Northerner who had no real qualms about holding other human beings as your property, you would probably do your best to make the most of the fact that you owned human beings as property prior to your losing that property. In other words, many Northern slaveholders sold their slaves to the South before the day of promised emancipation. In New York, for example, about two-thirds of all the people who were held as slaves were never freed. They instead were sold to Southerners. And, and, it's, and it's no coincidence that they were sold to Southerners who had a great desire for slaves because at the same time, sadly, that the North is embracing policies of gradual emancipation, you see in the South the beginnings of the cotton boom. Eli Whitney, of course, invents the cotton gin in 1793. The cotton gin uh, makes cotton, which was once really a very expensive um, fabric because there are all these sticky little seeds that have to be removed from the cotton fiber. It used to take one person a whole day to clean by hand one pound of cotton. With a cotton gin, however, you know, which mechanically combs those seeds out, one person in one day can clean 50 pounds of cotton. So uh, cotton, which had once been a fabric of, of, of the wealthy and the well-born, was, was now something that was in reach of the masses. Cotton became um, a great asset to America's economy. You know, what oil is to Saudi Arabia, cotton was to the United States. It becomes our, our, our number one export. By, by 1850, it accounts for almost 60%, 60% of America's GDP is because of cotton. And, and the demand um, for, for land on which you could grow it and enslave people who can grow it is, is something that drives not only westward expansion, but also the expansion into the West of American slavery. We see people um, by the 1820s and 1830s so, so desperate for, uh, for, for land on which they can grow cotton that they leave the United States. They, they, they emigrate to Mexico, to a part of Mexico called Texas, where they can grow cotton and use slave labor. Now, there are other measures that are attempted to blunt slavery and its expansion. It's not just the territorial expansion of slavery that's at issue. It's the expansion of it among human beings. At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the delegates who were gathered discussed slavery. One issue, of course, is going to be how should slaves be counted 
as, as, as part of the population? To what extent should, should slaves be counted when we um, come up with the, the number of people to be represented by members of Congress? Ultimately, we know there was the three-fifths comp compromise, that enslaved people would be counted as three-fifths of a person for purposes of representation. Um, the, the Southerners wanted them to count as five-fifths of a person. You know, they, they would have been happy if they counted as 15-fifths of a person for purposes of representation. In the North, many people thought they should count as zero because, of course, they didn't get to vote. They weren't really represented. Southerners counted, countered that, well, there are many people in the North who don't get to vote. Many white people don't own sufficient land to qualify them to vote. Women don't get to vote. We still count those people. So three-fifths is a compromise. Another compromise deals with the future importation of enslaved people. Are we going to continue to bring people across the ocean against their will? and enslave them here within the borders of the United States. We remember, this is Jefferson's charge against the king in his draft of the Declaration of Independence. Many thought that that was a travesty. Many thought that that should come to an end. Many others thought that the free trade of individuals, of slave labor, is something that the United States should not prevent. Essentially, the Constitution adopted as a rule that nothing would do be done about the issue of the, the importation of slaves for 20 years. And so 20 years later, in 1808, at the earliest possible allowable moment, Thomas Jefferson signs into law a bill adding the provision that slavery, that the importation of slaves from Africa is banned in the United States. So the, the slave trade is off limits. It's interesting, too, when you think about the coalition of individuals who made that possible. It wasn't just people who were hostile to slavery who supported that law. We've all been thinking about these issues, um, thinking about what motivates people in politics, thinking about how, how some people will use politics to, uh, to, to stamp out the competition. Who else, would you guess, supported this provision to ban the future importation of slaves. Slaveholders, right? Especially people who had large numbers of, of slaves themselves. If you were a slaveholder, this, this essentially limited the supply of, of, of other slaves. It meant that, you know, your slaves would be worth even more. It, it, would, it would make it more difficult, more expensive for, for upstarts to gain a workforce to compete with you economically. It would make it easier for you to sell your slaves at a higher price if that's what you desire. So this is really kind of an unholy alliance of, of people coming together to end a terrible thing, the transatlantic slave trade. So there are things that are being done. But it seems as if the, the window by which Northerners and Southerners can come to compromises is beginning to close. We, we begin to see attitudes hardening about slavery, as well as attitudes about sectionalism deepening. When we uh, 
talk about the North and the South. We're really talking about a 19th century phenomenon. In the 18th century, there was no monolithic North. There was no monolithic South. As I mentioned, slavery existed everywhere in 1776. Slavery was allowed everywhere in 1776. And, and this notion that there is a North and there is a South, it was really much more complicated than that. The 13 British North American colonies that became the United States were all founded by different people for different reasons at different times. They were all settled by different people from different parts of England and Europe and Africa. There was a lot that made them distinct. And if we were going to paint with a broad brush, maybe we could say there's a lower south. And then you have the, the, the middle colonies. And then you have New England. But the idea that there is a north and a south, divided in the east by the Mason-Dixon line, is something that is going to sort of enter into the public consciousness during the 19th century, in part because of the cotton gin. The cotton boom in the south is going to help fuel not only a desire in the South for more slave labor, it's also going to help fuel the development of industry in the North. The market revolution of the 19th century is something that is stimulated in part by the cotton boom of the South. All of this cotton, all of this cotton fiber is frequently transported to the North, where in textile mills and places like Lowell, Massachusetts, that cotton fiber is turned into fabric, and that fabric is, is, is turned into clothing. And uh, the industry that develops in the North, the manufacturing that develops in the North, is, is going to become a powerful interest in its own right. And, and the union is going to be increasingly divided by questions of economic policy. At the time of the American founding, it was controversial even to imagine that there would be economic policy, in part because the national economy really wasn't all that diverse. When, when, when the vast majority of the people in America are farmers, it's not even very meaningful to have a pro-farming policy, right? I'll take a little bit from you to give to me, but then you'll be able to take a little bit from me to give to you. What's the point of that, right? But when you have increased economic diversity, it brings with it all sorts of great benefits. And it's, it's wonderful when people get to make the most of their own comparative advantage. It's wonderful when people get to, to make the most of their own particular talents and resources to, to produce what they're good at producing and allow others to produce what they're good at producing. That leads to all sorts of advancements that Americans benefit from greatly during the course of the 19th century, when, when per capita income doubles between 1800 and 1850. And, and yet, right, this, this wonderful specialization that we see developing also makes possible special interest politics where people in some parts of the nation try to use the law to their own advantage and coincidentally to the great disadvantage of others. And that is certainly the case as far as the tariff is concerned. The tariff had been an issue for a while. It really came to a head during the administration of President Andrew Jackson. On the left, we have Andrew Jackson, old hickory, 
On the right, we have his first vice president, John C. Calhoun of South Carolina. Um, they say that the presidency really can wear someone down. I, I think that's probably true, although eight years under any circumstances could wear someone down. Um, but it's common to see pictures of, say, Jimmy Carter in 1976 when he was elected and 1980 um, when he was replaced or um, President Obama when he first uh, came to the White House and, and, and now. Um, I think what's less frequently appreciated is just the, the toll that the vice presidency can take upon someone. Um, for example, John C. Calhoun, um, for reasons that I'll explain in just a moment, uh, he was only vice president for one term. Andrew Jackson, two-term president, but he had two vice presidents. And, and the vice presidency was a very stressful time in the life of John C. Calhoun. I mean, this, this, this handsome young man would be ravaged by the rigors of this office. <laughs> and, and I suppose this would happen to anyone um, who had to serve as vice president for Andrew Jackson, especially during this period in time. Because Andrew Jackson was a supporter less of tariffs than he was the supremacy of the national government. And the national government had adopted a very high tariff. Some called it the tariff of abominations. And, and what made the tariff so abominable was the uneven impact that it had on different sectors of the economy and different regions of the union. There, there were some people who loved high tariffs. There were some people who benefited greatly from high tariffs. Uh, Northern manufacturers benefited greatly from high tariffs. Um, one semi-hypothetical example, there was a clockmaker in New Haven, Connecticut named Chauncey Jerome. Chauncey Jerome was uh, an American clockmaker who helped to pioneer within America the use of mass production techniques and interchangeable parts. Only problem was, Chauncey Jerome, he may have been among the first in America, but there were people already in Great Britain who had beat him to the punch. There were people in Great Britain who, for a while, had been using interchangeable parts and mass production techniques to make clocks. Chauncey Jerome found that he could build a pretty good clock, let's say, for $10 a clock. Problem was, his British competitors could build an even better clock for, let's say, $8 a clock. Would Chauncey Jerome benefit from a tariff that would increase the cost of the British clock by $4? What if the, four, what if the $8 British clock suddenly cost $12? Remind me again, what does Chauncey Jerome's clock cost? Some people are saying 10, but, but you forget. There's been this tariff, right? The British clock, the competing clock, now costs $12. Chauncey Jerome's clock is now $11.50, right? He could raise the price of his own clocks, still undercut the price of the British clocks, and sell more clocks. This is wonder at a higher price. It's wonderful for Chauncey Jerome. It's, it's probably great for the people who work for Chauncey Jerome. It's not so great for the people who want to buy clocks. Now all the clocks are more expensive than they need to be. And it's especially bad for the people who produce things that we export to Great Britain. Because Great Britain's not going to take this line down. Great Britain's going to respond. 
they're going to raise the tariffs on the things that we send to them. And we don't send many clocks to them, but we send a heck of a lot of cotton to them. So, so the tariffs that are imposed upon the cottons we, cotton we send to Europe make cotton more expensive in Europe. They mean that Europeans can afford to buy less cotton. They mean that Americans are going to be selling less cotton to Europe. So this is legislation, this tariff, that really helps um, people in the north, but it really hurts people in the south. John C. Calhoun is from South Carolina. South Carolina is up in arms about the tariff. It it, it entertains the notion of, of trying to nullify it, of not enforcing it within the boundaries of South Carolina. Um, this leads to a real crisis. Andrew Jackson um, threatens to use force, threatens to send truth to for- troops to force South Carolina to comply with this tariff law. There's, there's a, a famous Jefferson Day dinner. So members of, of the Jacksonian Democratic Party um, would gather together in support of Jefferson's uh, memory on his birthday, April 13th. And on April 13th, John C. Calhoun and Andrew Jackson find themselves president and vice president at the head table of a banquet where Andrew Jackson raises uh, his glass and, uh, and makes a toast. Jackson toasts the Federal Union. It must be preserved. And, and then in a, a great sort of toast comeback, John C. Calhoun raises his glass to the Union after our liberty, most dear. Well, it's for reasons such as that one that John C. Calhoun is going to be replaced as as Jackson's vice president by Martin Van Buren. And and this, this tension that is growing and deepening between the North and the South is one that continues to grow. And while issues like the tariff are part of it, the real division, the division over slavery, is central to it. And and more and more Americans are beginning to focus on the inherent wrongness of slavery. In the 18th century, it was common for people to say, oh, slavery, it's awful, right? But it's a necessary evil. That's the sort of defense you would hear from a slaveholder in the 1770s or 1780s. It's an evil, but it's an, a necessary evil. Now, people are beginning to say that it is an evil, period, and it must be ended immediately. If in the 18th century, the, the, the plans in opposition to slavery focused on things like territorial limitation, and gradual emancipation. Now more and more people are gonna begin to call for immediate abolition. One of the leaders of this abolition movement um, are people like uh, William Lloyd Garrison. As he writes on Independence Day in 1829, every 4th of July, our Declaration of Independence is produced with a sublime indignation to set forth the tyranny of the mother country and to challenge the admiration of the world. But what a pitiful detail of grievances does this document present in comparison with the wrongs which our slaves endure. 
In view of it, I am ashamed of my country. I am sick of our unmeaning declamation in praise of liberty and equality, of our hypocritical cant about the unalienable rights of man. And he's right. I mean, you know, this, this, this contrast between slavery and freedom is just too stark to ignore. And William Lloyd Garrison and others like him are increasingly doing their best to make sure that people cannot ignore this issue. In part, William Lloyd Garrison produces many issues of his newspaper, The Liberator, and, and other abolitionist publications are going to increasingly argue for the immediate end of slavery. This, of course, brings about a response from people in the American South. People in the American South maybe used to say that slavery was a necessary evil. It's evil, but it's necessary to our economy. We're enslaved by slavery, they might say. Now, Southerners are going to begin to argue that slavery is not evil at all. Southerners in the 1830s and 1840s and 1850s will argue that slavery is a positive good, that it's good not only for white people, but it's also good for black people, that, that slavery produces good results, and that it's an institution uh, that we should preserve not out of any great self-interest, but just because of the moral rightness of it. How do you make and sustain such a crazy-sounding argument? Well, all you need to do is turn your attention to George Fitzhugh, right? One of the leaders uh, among pro-slavery thinkers. Um, he makes the argument in, in a number of different ways. Here's one of them. He says that the slavery of people who are descended from Africans um, here relieves him from a far more cruel slavery in Africa, from idolatry and cannibalism, and every brutal vice and crime that can disgrace humanity. Slavery Christianizes, protects, supports, and civilizes him. It governs him far better than free laborers in the North are governed. There, in the North, wife murder has become a mere holiday pastime. Negroes never kill their wives. Our Negroes are not only better off as to physical comfort than free laborers, but their moral condition is better. The Negro slaves of the South are the happiest and in some sense, the freest people in the world. The master labors for his slave. They exchange industrial value. But the capitalist, living on his income, gives nothing to his subjects. He lives by mere exploitations. If you want to know the origin of the concept of wage slavery, you are looking at it. If you want to know the name of the man who coins the term wage slavery, his name is George Fitzhugh. The criticism of the labor system of the North is, 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 is originating in the American South. The free labor of the North, where people voluntarily sometimes at, at, at great inconvenience, will cross oceans to work in northern factories, will leave dangerous and impoverished farms to move to northern mill towns. 
who themselves will choose because they calculate that it will offer them better advantages to work as wage laborers in the north. Those people, according to Fitchew, are, are, are really much more mistreated than American slaves. Slavery is a burden upon slaveholders, Fitchew will have you believe. Slaveholders have, have an obligation, the people who they inherit, the people who they look after, after are people they have to care from, for from the cradle to the grave. The, the argument is that once you're no longer fit to work in a northern factory, your employer will say goodbye. You'll be tossed into the street. Not so on a benevolent southern plantation where you'll be cared for into your old age. And uh, if you think this sounds a little bit like socialism, you're right. And George Fitchew agrees. Slavery is a form and the very best form of socialism. He writes in his 1854 book, Sociology for the South, or the Failure of Free Society. So the pro-slavery thinkers of the South ultimately are, are, are forced to reject the principles of the American Revolution. They're forced to reject the principles of individual liberty, to reject the principles of, of, of freedom and individual choice. They are the progenitors of the principles of, of, of 20th century socialists who will argue that the individual is less important than society as a whole and that individual rights should, should, should come after calculations of, of what's best for the most. The dispute, the growing dispute between pro-slavery thinkers in the South and abolitionists in the North will be exacerbated by a few different events. One, of course, is the 1831 rebellion of Nat Turner in Virginia, and this comes at really a, a, a crucial time in Virginia's history. Nat Turner is uh, a man who was enslaved in Southern Virginia. Uh, he's considered uh, by his master to be, in many respects, a model slave. He is someone who uh, had previously uh, always been very obedient. Um, he was a man of deep religious conviction who had always been very pious. What, what his master did not know is that Nat Turner's religious conviction was deepening his growing conviction that slavery was immoral, unjust, unsustainable, and utterly intolerable. And Nat Turner led an uprising in which a number of white people, as well as a number of black people in Virginia would die before it was brutally put down. Perhaps the largest immediate impact of Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia, at least, is that it, it really increased racial tensions. And it, it emboldened white people who wanted to further restrict the liberties of, of black people, including free black people. And it really reduced the leverage 
of white Virginians who had been advocating for a long time for measures that might ameliorate the burden of slavery on black people and maybe even reduce the number of slaves in Virginia. One of the unsuccessful measures that Jefferson advocated while he was governor of Virginia was a plan for gradual emancipation in Virginia. His eldest grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, um, was a member of Virginia's assembly in 1832 when, when he sort of took the torch from his grandfather and proposed his own bill for gradual emancipation in Virginia. And, and what's so amazing is that in 1832, right, just 30 years before Virginia was a state of the Confederacy, in, in, in Richmond in 1832, just 30 years before the building in which Thomas Jefferson Randolph was proposing this gradual emancipation bill would become the capital of the Confederacy. This bill would come so close to passage. Right? In, a, in a chamber of about 120 delegates, it lost by only about 15 votes. So just think about that. Virginia almost adopted a bill for gradual emancipation in 1832. It almost became like you know, a northern state in 1832. And, 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 and yet, this is sort of the final, last moment when such a thing is even conceivable because you have the increasing tensions brought about by the rise of this debate between abolitionists and pro-slavery thinkers. The, 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 the two sides are becoming increasingly um, in, intractable. The divisions are becoming increasingly insurmountable. The antipathy and animosity between the North and the South is, is making a civil war to some, at least, seem increasingly inevitable. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, this advocate of gradual emancipation, is Thomas Jefferson's oldest grandson. Jefferson's youngest grandson is George With Randolph. And he is going to be the Confederate Secretary of War. So it's, 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 it's really sad how in this period between the 1820s and 1860, the polarization of America um, is, is increasing um, dramatically. Among the abolitionists, among the people arguing for the immediate outlawing of slavery are, are, are not only um, people who were born free, but also people who were born as slaves. And, and one of them, among the, the most prominent abolitionists of all, one of them is named Frederick Douglass. He's born not far from Washington, D.C. He's born um, on a, a plantation fairly close to Annapolis, Maryland. He's born on a date that we don't know. This is one of the details that masters oftentimes didn't really consider important to keep about their human property. What's their birthday? We know that his, uh, his mother called, her, called him his, her little Valentine. And so he always celebrated February 14th as, as his birthday. Um, before he even owned himself, he took some money that he was able to save up from working odd jobs 
to buy a book, a book of orations, including speeches by people like George Washington and Patrick Henry. And, and it is as someone who has uh, emancipated himself, who has run away from slavery, who, who left Baltimore and, and arrived in New York City. It's his speeches in behalf of freedom, his writings in behalf of abolition that made him really one of the leading players of the abolitionist movement. And, and he, like William Lloyd Garrison, would frequently appeal to the core principles of the United States, to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, to point out the, the sort of hypocrisy of, of America, a nation that is half slave and half free. Frederick, uh, I'm sorry, Douglas said, this 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? Frederick Douglass goes on to, uh, to ask, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sound of rejoicing is empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants brass-fronted impudence, your shout of liberty and equality hollow mockery your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. And uh, what he said was true. I mean, this was true. Nearly all the other nations of the Northern Hemisphere, certainly the, the nations of Europe like Britain and France, had abolished slavery by this point. It was true that, that Americans could sing and whistle and launch fireworks in honor of freedom, but all around them have people who didn't even own themselves. What to do about this? How to confront this reality? The, the confrontation of this reality is something that, that tormented America as we engaged in what is, in many respects, so the great project of the 19th century, the expansion of the United States into the land of the West. Every time we added a new state, the, the question uh, arose, will it be a, a slave state or will it be a free state? In 1819, the people of, of Missouri appealed for admission to the Union. And, and people in the North said, no, I don't think we, we want another free, we want another slave state. Ultimately, there's going to be a compromise. 
The District of Maine is going to be split off from the state of Massachusetts, and it will be admitted as a free state. So there will remain a, a parity in the number of states that allow slavery and the number of states that forbid it. In the future, the, the southern boundary of the state of Missouri will be a dividing line between north and south, between territory where slavery is allowed and territory where slavery is forbidden. This Missouri Compromise Line is one reason why the northern border of Texas is where it is. Because the debate over slavery is going to continue when Texas appeals for admission to the Union. Texas is this, the Lone Star Republic. Texas is an independent nation for several years, not because it wanted to be, but because Northerners didn't want to admit to the Union a new slave state. Finally, Texas is brought into the Union. The, the, the war that the admission of Texas helps to provoke the Mexican-American War is going to end uh, in part with the adoption of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which will bring into U.S. territory all the land of the Southwest. Now, uh, California, its status as a free state is not going to be in, in doubt, in part because of the 49ers, right? The gold rush um, that followed the discovery of gold in California. When you think about people who would make the decision to sort of uproot themselves and go west in what was really kind of the, the risky enterprise of, of trying to find gold. Um, these are people who don't own profitable cotton plantations in the south. Um, this brings about a compromise over Utah and New Mexico, where popular sovereignty, where votes will be allowed um, to determine the future status of, of slavery. Um, the Compromise of 1850 also brings about a tougher fugitive slave law, a law that will make it easier for runaway slaves in the North to be captured and returned in chains to the South. Frederick Jackson, I'm sorry, Frederick Douglass was no fan of this Fugitive Slave Act. He himself feared that he would be captured, that he would be returned to slavery. For him, there, there was only one response. The true remedy to anyone trying to capture him and return him to slavery was a good revolver, a steady hand, and a determination to shoot down any man attempting to kidnap a fugitive slave. And, and of course, violence would erupt. It would erupt after the election of 1860 when Lincoln was elected as president of the United States, even though he wasn't even listed on the ballot in 10 southern states. The Civil War was conceived of by people in the South as a second American Revolution, a declaration for independence. But it was not a declaration for the independence of anyone who was held in chains. Not even Lincoln uh, would would make the Civil War a war about liberation early on. As he said in 1862, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save it by, by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. And indeed, all of these policies 
are ones that Lincoln would pursue in pursuit of preserving the Union. First, there was a promise to keep slavery alive everywhere if the southern states would return to the Union. Then, then Lincoln freed the slaves in some parts, but not all, right, through his Emancipation Proclamation. Finally, finally, in 1865, the 14th Amendment ended slavery throughout the United States. The, uh, the story of American slavery and American freedom is, is a long one. One so long that I only have about a minute and a half for questions. Um, but I think in some ways it's an inspiring one, right? If the people of America could finally, finally come to terms with a problem as, as, as difficult and awful and intractable as, as slavery, if finally that injustice, an injustice of that magnitude could be ended, just think what it's possible for us to do in our day and in our time. Thank you very much. So, so maybe we have time for one or two quick questions and very quick answers, maybe one. <laughs> you said that the slavery came first and racism second. So why is it that Africans were the ones enslaved and not Native Americans or possibly others? Great question. I mean, I think there are some, there are some practical reasons for that. One is that slavery had long in, in, existed in Africa. And the slave trade between Africans and Europeans had, had already existed before Virginia. So it was a, a, a steady supply. The problem of enslaving Native Americans um, is, is that they could run away and go home. Um, also, it made you very unpopular with their families, with their nations, you know, who would be uh, you know, desirous of attacking you. Um, you couldn't get back home if you were enslaved from Africa. And it was very clear that someone was from Africa, so it made it easy to identify someone who was not the owner of their labor. All right, thanks so much.